0: watch out i can't believe morgan stanley would give a brain teaser that it's this hard stick around to see if you can solve it do you have a morgan stanley investment banking interview coming up we combed through thousands of interview questions submitted through our database for morgan stanley investment banking specifically and came up with the most common and the toughest interview questions especially this one brain teaser that's super, super tricky. So watch as I give these questions to my colleague, Brian, who happened to have landed a internship role in investment banking at Morgan Stanley and see if you can get these answers right, including that one brain teaser. All right, hi, Brian. So I understand that you're interested in investment banking and I'm curious why Morgan Stanley?
1: Yeah, so over the last few months, I was lucky enough to be able to speak with a number of people at the firm, including Curtis Anderson, who's a managing director in the transportation group, and Julie Smith, who's an EVP in Industrials. Mr. Anderson and Ms. Smith have a combined 30 plus years of experience with Morgan Stanley. And what struck me the most about my conversations with them is how they both attributed their career success to the deep-rooted culture of mentorship that the MS provides. So look, I know that Morgan Stanley takes the apprenticeship model of investment banking very seriously. I know that all interns are formally paired up with mentors both junior and senior and i know that those mentors are available to guide them throughout the 10-week internship program this deep-rooted culture of mentorship has really made me realize that morgan stanley is a place where i would likely learn the most during my two-year sit as an analyst
0: okay great um now do you know who the ceo of morgan stanley is
1: yeah so i know that ted pick is a new ceo he started in january of this year uh, he, he previously served a few important roles, first as co-president of Morgan Stanley uh, and then, you know, co-head of firm strategy and also the head of ISG.
0: So since you're going to be recruiting for investment banking, that would be part of the ISG department. So who is the head of
1: ISG? Yeah, the head of ISG is Damsikowitz. He's also co-president of MS.
0: All right, good. Sounds like you do your research. Um, now let's move on to a behavioral question. Can you tell me about a time where something slipped through the cracks.
1: Yeah, so I can think back to my freshman year MA internship where I worked at a regional boutique investment bank in my hometown. Uh, given that this was really my first internship, it was easy for me to fall into the trap of treating every project or assignment with an equal level of importance. Timelines for projects that my managers had deemed as highly critical often became very constrained uh, as I had become pretty, pretty used to treating every single deadline equally. That experience really taught me the importance of managing upwards and setting expectations with my managers early on. Every time I receive a new project now, I ensure that I ask what the deadlines are up front, along with providing context behind other conflicting assignments that may be on my plate at any given time i found, Annie, that this new approach has been tremendously helpful in ensuring that no assignment slips through the cracks. And it has really gone a long way in improving the direct lines of communication that I uh, you know, seek to constantly maintain with my teams.
0: So now we're going to switch into some of the technical questions. And I see here that you've applied to a generalist role in investment banking. Um, but what are some of the special multiples that only apply to certain industries?
1: Hmm. Yeah, well, I know the traditional multiples that are pretty general are things like, you know, enterprise value to EBITDA, um, and you know, price to earnings. But I think that And multiples that are pretty industry specific, I think back to maybe sector like airlines, where uh Lease expenses uh, tend to be a pretty big burden depending on whether airlines, you know, lease their fleet or own their fleet. So for that that type of industry, you would use enterprise value to EBITDA, where you're adding back rent expense so you can keep a valuation apples to apples. In energy, uh, you could also use enterprise value to EBITDAX, uh, with the X in DAX being exploration expense. Um, And in sectors like technology, right? There are some pretty unique multiples that you can use there, especially for, you know, smaller Uh, nascent technology firms or potentially startups. And those are, you know, for internet companies, perhaps enterprise value to unique visitors, enterprise value page views and things of that nature.
0: And um, another technical question. So this is more towards valuation. How would you value, say, your college campus pizza shop?
1: Yeah, so my college campus pizza shop well, I know, look, there are several ways to tr- traditionally value a company. The three most be- common be uh, public comps, acquisition comps, and discounted cash flow analysis. Uh, for public comps, it might be difficult to get an accurate multiple, considering that this is a, a local pizza pizzeria that's likely small and pretty private. Uh, but for acquisition comps, look, you'd look at recent acquisitions in the area of retail or restaurant sales to determine an EBITDA multiple. Now, the question is, how do you determine EBITDA? You can take a bottoms up approach uh, where you interview owners to determine average transaction price, you know, multiplied by the number of transactions per day or week or month they're getting to top line revenue. Uh, Or you could figure out per item COGS. You could also figure out other operating expenses like rent, bills, utilities, repair and maintenance or or labor, for example. Then you would add back depreciation and amortization to get you to an overall EBITDA figure. So that covers your acquisition, right? So for your DCF, similar process to get to EBITDA, but this time we want to get to unlevered free cash flow, which is essentially derived from taking net operating profit after taxes and taking out other things like CapEx, changes in networking capital. Uh, And this requires a, a few more assumptions. Bigger picture is that, you know, the big picture here is that we'll discount the future projected cash flows and then determine a terminal value to get to the valuation for today. Uh, happy to go further into detail on the DCF if you'd like.
0: I think we're good. Thank you. We're going to wrap up this interview with a couple of brain teasers. Let's go with this one. How many gas stations are there in the United States?
1: Mm, interesting question. Um. So I think that I would tackle this by first thinking about your typical size of your typical American town. Say your town in America has roughly 30,000 or so people living in it. And for every 30,000 people, you have roughly five gas stations serving that area. I know, taking, you know, a step back and a bigger picture look here, uh, that the U.S. is approximately 300 million people. Let's keep it at 300 million for simplicity's sake. So that means that there are roughly 10,000 towns, using our metric of 30,000 people per town, uh, that make up the United States in total. So... Taking our rough uh, metric of ten thousand towns in the U.S. and fi- we we can get to fifty thousand gas stations if we were to assume generally that there are five five gas stations in each town. You then want to make adjustments in this, right? So, for example, assume that a quarter of the population potentially lives in larger cities, where there might be only one gas station per per town of or so, or thirty thousand people. So you'll essentially have roughly, you know. If we're taking a quarter of those 10,000 towns, you're going to have roughly 7,500 towns with five gas stations and 2,500 towns with only one. Doing a little mental math, that gets you to roughly 40,000 or so gas stations in the United States.
0: Okay. Um, All right, so just for fun, here's the last question before we wrap things up. Sounds like fun. How do you get to the square root of 4,000 without using a calculator?
1: I'm not sure if I can get you the exact answer, but I would say, look, if if I were to take a shot at it and maybe do a little bit of rounding, I'd probably start with something that gets me close to 4,000. For example, I know that 28 times 20 equals 400, so I can go up from there, right? I can go 50 times 50 equals 2,500, 100 times 100 equals 10,000. So somewhere between 50 and 100 is where you'll find your answer. Uh, I have 60 times 60. That's, you know, 3,600, 70 times 70, 4,900. So I'm guessing it would probably be somewhere between 60 and 70. So I don't know. Best guess I have is, we'll call it 65.
0: Well, that's pretty close. Um, And I appreciate you making the times at it. So that's going to wrap up our interview process. And um, you should hear back from us shortly. And I want to wish you good luck with your interview process.
1: All right. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Annie. I really appreciate it.
0: All right. So we're going to go over that question in a little bit more detail and slower. And the question is, what is the square root of 4,000 without using a calculator? Okay. So watch carefully. I'm going to go over the steps um, and how to set it up. First thing you do is you take 4,000. So I'm just going to write 4,000 here, and you're actually going to put that division Simple, pretty similar to your standard division process. But with the square root, we want to think of it a little bit different, all right? So we take the first two digits. Actually, it needs different color. Okay, so 40. And the way you want to think of it is what number, when multiplied by itself, will get you to an answer that's as close to 40 as possible, but less than, right? And so the answer here is six, because six times six is 36. Right. We can't do seven because seven times seven equals 49, which is bigger than 40. So the answer is six right here. Six times six equals 36. And then we want to subtract it. So that would leave you with a remainder of four. All right. So that seems pretty simple. That's the first part. The second part, this is where it becomes a little bit funky. You want to drop down the two zeros. Okay. So now we're looking at the number 400, okay? Now I'm gonna write a very specific format that I want you to copy. So right before the 400, I'm gonna put less than or equals to a placeholder, the multiply symbol, another placeholder. And I'm also gonna do a calculation to the side, all right? So off to the side, I'm gonna take this six over here that I'm going to point to right here. Okay. I'm going to take that six. So let me just do this as a scratch pad. All right. So I want to take the double of this number. So right here I have six. If I double it, that gives me six times two, which is 12. All right. Everyone follows so far. Okay. And that 12 is what I'm going to add right here. One, two. Okay. So what have we done so far? What this means is I want a number where it starts with a one, two, the third digit. So let's just say this is uh, one, two, one, right? So 121 times, we said this was one, so this has to be a one is less than or equal to 400. So we wanna find the digits such that when you multiply these two numbers, it's as close to 400 as possible, but not exceeding it. Okay, so we know one works because it's just 121. Now, does two work? All right, let's move over to the scratch pad here. Does two work? If I take 122, right, multiply by two, that is equals to two. 44, which indeed is less than 400, so that works as well. But can we go one further? So let's try 123 times three, okay, what does that yield? It will give me 369, which is also less than 400, and I think this is the closest one that we can get to, all right, because let's just try out the last one. Let's say it's 124, right, okay, I think I need to do my standard equation here 1694 all right so that is equals to 496 which is not less than or equal to 400 so that would not work so the best number to put here is three all right so what i'm gonna do is put a three here put a three here and i already know that 123 times 3 as i see here is 369 right? So that I'm going to subtract it. If I take 400 minus 369, that would give me 31. All right. 31. Okay. Now what's next? Okay. So remember we found this digit over here, right? We found this three, that three, we're going to put up and put a three right here. Okay. So we can stop there. We can stop there and just call it a day, and just say you know roughly sixty three times sixty three is equals to four thousand. Okay, and if you do that math, you'll see that it comes out pretty close. But let let me just show you one more step if you want to progress beyond the decimal point. All right, so let's go one step further. What happens if I bring in two more zeros? Well, there are no more zeros from this number. So what I need to do is. First of all, add two zeros, but then because I'm adding new numbers, I'm also putting a decimal point. So now we're going to the decimals. All right, so let's go back to our scratch pad. Okay, so uh, 3100, 3100. First of all, let's set it up. So set up our template less than or equals to a digit times another digit. And then we want to figure out what is that number right in front, right? So let's go return scratch pad. This time, we take this number, 63, and then we double it. So what is 63 times two? That gives us 126, six. All right. So over here, 126 is what I put here, 126. Now, how we wanna think about it is, what is that digit such that when multiplied together, it is less than 3100? So we could try one, right? Clearly one works one two six one times one is obviously less than thirty one hundred. So let's see if two works. So I have one two six, two this time multiplied by two that would give me twenty five two, four. All right, is that less or less than thirty one hundred? Yes, that works. okay. And if you want to try three, the next one won't work, but I'll just show you why it wouldn't work. So let's say you replace this with a digit of three. Okay, so obviously if you must start from the top, it goes 36, so on and so forth, which is clearly more than 3,100. So that would not work. So we would stick with the digit two. I would put two over here, two over here, and then I would write two up top. And then if you wanna go down the process, let's just humor me here. So one, two, six, two times two is two, five, two, four, subtract that, you get to whatever answer you get, and then you can keep on with the decimal points. All right, so folks, that is how you figure out the square root of a number without using a calculator. And this will help you answer your interview questions.